So exhortations and spiritual disciplines is what I'm calling this today. Um, And I just wanted to talk about what I like for a minute. I like music. Lots of people like music. Um, You know, and I enjoy listening particularly to fingerstyle guitarists. I, I really love piano virtuosos. I love to listen to people who can play a flute well, but I love the guitar, the acoustic guitar in particular. And when I hear people who are so incredibly attuned to that instrument that they can just, they, they can make the most incredible sounds come from it to think it's a box with some strings on it. There's a few of these guys I like to listen to, and I even subscribe to some of them on YouTube. I'm a YouTube guy. I love to listen to Tommy Emmanuel. Um, if you know any of these names, you, you know how fantastic these, guy, these guys are at their craft. Tommy Emanuel, a guy named Pete Hutlinger. Uh, Tom Bresh, he is the son of uh, Merle Travis, man who pioneered the Travis pick, if you're familiar with that. A guy named Doug Smith. And there's a Russian guy that I found these past few months called Igor Presnyakov. And he is amazing at a fingerstyle guitar. Look him up. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the late, great Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed. I know you're thinking, Jerry Reed? That's right. Before he is eastbound and down, he was a guitar virtuoso. And uh, he was amazing if you ever had any of his music to listen to. Um, At any rate, you know, I I appreciate that these guys, like I said, can take a piece of wood. It's got some strings on it, okay? And with the deaf dexterity of a skilled surgeon, they can just make that thing sing with, with notes and sounds that, that majority of the people cannot even think of how they even do that. It's just, it's a, even when you see them do it, it's astounding to look at them. You, you have no idea what they're doing. But, you know, obviously for those of us whose the musical gene has skipped a generation, I find this, I hold this in high regard. So, um, at any rate, you know, so these guys are, they're, if you, or any musician, piano, whatever, if you hear somebody, you know, they can, you know, they're forceful, and yet they they're delicate. They feel every note that emanates from inside. When they play, they own the arrangement. It's not just simply that they're just mechanically, you know, just plucking away, but they own it. It's theirs. And, you know, and they're, they're part of millions of guitarists and other musicians around the world and instrumentalists of that, that many of them have equal and even higher talent than these guys. You know, my, my view is very small. But, uh, but, you know, the one thing that any instrumentalist has in common, there's a common thread that runs between them. It's this, practice. Am I right? Practice. Now, there's some people who are just naturally musically talented, and you've seen them, and they, it seems to those of us, they can sit down with something they've never touched before and just play it like, you know, like uh, they've had it their whole life. But I guarantee even these guys do not simply sit down one day with an unfamiliar instrument and master it in one sitting. They had to endure the grueling hours of training their hands and their ears to pick up the subtle nuances of the instrument. They had to work for sometimes months to get by, to get that particular riff or run that they would just constantly flub every time. So by the time that we hear a master musician dish out a complex piece of music with seemingly no effort, 
rest assured that they have already spent hundreds of hours practicing that piece over and over and over again. They've disciplined their bodies to conquer that item. So a discipline, though, a discipline is something that just takes good old-fashioned W-O-R-K, right? I mean, that's what a discipline is. It's a focused field of study that considerable effort has gone into in order to produce mastery of it. In another sense of the word, we use the word discipline regarding our children many times. We discipline our children, okay, in order to bring about better behavior and better actions. You know, we think about soldiers, Marines. You're formed out of, notice I was in the Navy. I left the Navy out because discipline's a little different. But at any rate, uh, soldiers and Marines are formed out of a ragtag group of recruits to which a generous amount of discipline and time has been applied. Uh, job skills, you know, skilled welders are amazing to watch. Cabinet makers are astounding, but they didn't just start out doing that. They had to practice. They had to learn by repetition and study, and it's a discipline. So like the musician, the marine, the, the worker, the cabinet maker, uh, you know, Christians also have spiritual disciplines. And we are commanded to have these disciplines in our lives. But you know what? They take time and practice and patience in order to produce themselves in our lives. So if you would look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where we're looking at 14 through 23. So while you're turning there, you, we've been, excuse me, we've been, uh, we've been hearing from the book of 1 Thessalonians a few times lately. I know Russ has preached from it, Nick's preached from it. Um, I don't think it was at all planned that way, but it's just the way things have worked out. But we've already got a bit of the context of, of what it's about. And we're familiar with some of the themes that run through it, such as sanctification, uh, purity. Uh, he's talked about the second coming of Christ in there. That's a major theme in First Thessalonians. He says, but I wanted to focus on another theme or two that, um, that Paul uses to lead them in light of all these other things that he's been talking about. And these things is kind of his wrapping up, his summation of the book. He talks about the fellowship together. And the communion of the saints, okay? That is to say church life in general, right? Okay. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, body, and soul, whole spirit and body and, and, and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A few months ago, last time I taught, we, uh, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Okay, it said, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Okay, this passage is actually similar to Romans chapter 12 as far as how it instructs us to deal lovingly with each other as well as to those who may feel somewhat of some animosity towards us. Talks about how we deal with our enemies. Talks about how, you know, we're going to warn the unruly and so forth. 
Paul, like he does in many of his letters, he's writing his letter to this church and showing his love and care for them in this way. This is a fatherly, a pastoral letter. We, we know in, uh, if you were to look at chapter 2, or 17 and 18, it says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see you, see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. So Paul, he separated from his flock, and he expressed a great desire to be with them. Um, having been in the military, I, I can, you know, I use this illustration. If you've ever been in the military and you've been deployed overseas on a ship or, you know, or wherever the army goes or whatever they do, um, you'll, uh, you, you know, you've been, you've, you're separated from your loved ones. You get a feeling kind of what Paul's going through. Um, for, and for several reasons beyond his control, he longed for their fellowship. So he, one thing he could do is he could write this letter of encouragement and exhortation to his spiritual children, just as a father would do to his children to know what is expect, to let them know what is expected of them in his absence and to press on. So, uh, you know, you're, you're gone, you're, you're overseas and you've, you know, you're writing a letter to your, uh, to your wife and your children. You know, you want to talk to your son, you say, Johnny, you know, uh, you know, take care of your mother. I want you to care for your sister. Uh, you know, help them out. Do your chores just as if I were there with you. Don't have to be told to take out the garbage. Don't have to be told to cut the grass or whatever. You know, if you need help with something, you know, you're, you're in charge. This is what I want you to do. This is what I expect of you. I'm not there with you, but this is what I still expect from you. So after laying out the other themes in the book and encouraging them in those matters, Paul begins his summary and conclusion with a set of exhortations. So he starts off by saying in verse 14, you know, I urge you brothers, admonish the idle. New King James says, warn the unruly. The word for admonish or warn, no matter which word you use, the word that, come, that represents them in the original language occurs eight times in the New Testament. In Acts 20, verse 31, Romans 15, verse 14. It occurs in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, Colossians 1, 28, Colossians 3, 16. Of course, here, 1 Thessalonians, uh, well, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, and then, of course, here in 5.14, and then 2 Timothy 3.15. The reason I listed those out, if you were to look at them, you will see how imperative it is, how many times we're told in Scripture to warn the unruly, to, to pull them back into rank, to, uh, to not put up with them causing dissension. But it gives us clear evidence that warning a brother or a sister for their correction is an imperative that God expects the church to perform. And I'm sure that's something we just all love to do, right? How do we view someone typically that, you know, seems like they're always on our case, always, you know, saying, hey, you should be doing this, shouldn't be doing that. Well, to, be, to, be, to give them some credit, not everybody does it in the right way. But the fact is, we are supposed to be warning those who are unruly. Those, uh, it's the same idea 
that we're familiar with, and, you know, we've heard the example before, you know, when uh, we tell, you know, our child, you know, not to play in the street. We've all heard this used, you know, we've maybe even done that. We tell them, don't play in the street. And so, next thing you know, they, they're out in the street. Pull them back, you know, tell them, warn them again, do not play in the street. It's not safe. I know better than you. Don't do it. They're out there again. You know, now it's time for stronger discipline. Whether, you know, at this point, it's time for a spanking. Maybe it should have been done prior to. I don't know, but that's not the point. But the point is that we want to warn them because the short-term restriction, the short-term correction has the long-term goal of their safety in mind. And this is the same way that we are encouraged by Paul to deal with one another. When we have someone in the body causing dissension, there's a method that we're supposed to take care of that. We're to lovingly go to them, confront them. If someone is is, uh, is, is caught up in sin, we're to lovingly go to them, confront them. And that's not an easy thing to do. We're often told in today's society, you know, mind your own business. Of course, we've been learning Sunday school, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? And um, that's already been addressed there, you know. But so Paul comes out strong. He starts his letter in a very strong way by coming out somewhat heavy-handed on this. He says, this is what I want you to do. He's, and uh, he wanted to address some issues that obviously had been going on where people were disrupting the unity of the Thessalonian church and the body and the fellowship was being disorderly. So the church has a prescribed way of operating, just like any well-organized army would operate, okay? This army that we kind of alluded to earlier, it's, got, it's had a lot of discipline, and these guys have to operate as a unit. When you have the individuals going out there, they're causing the whole unity of the body to fall apart, And that'll actually cut the army off at its knees in regard to its effectiveness. So he wanted them to deal with the rebellious in a heavy-handed way so as to nip it in the bud. Uncle Barney Five says, right, nip it in the bud. I guarantee this is probably the first Reformed Baptist church you've ever heard Barney Five quoted. But there you have it. Um, (laughs) Strange. Okay, at any rate... He has us go on then. After he talks about admonishing the idol, okay, and warning the unruly, he wants us to go on, encourage or comfort the faint-hearted. This is, this is another issue which we're, we have this imperative to deal with those who are struggling. They're weak. The faint-hearted might be fearful. Boldness in and of itself can be a weakness, as we just talked about, when you have the unruly exercising their boldness to come out and disrupt the unity, that's a problem. Boldness in and of itself is a good thing. But then there's people that suffer from the opposite extreme. They have no boldness. And it is something that can be crippling at times. But boldness is necessary in the life of a believer. So when we're faint-hearted, we have no boldness. Our timidity cripples us. And have you ever, maybe you've suffered from that? I don't know, but I've, I mean, we've all dealt with fear at times in our life. And sometimes it can just be something that seems like a wall of Jericho over us. We, well, I mean, we see that in Scripture, don't we? They came and they saw the wall of Jericho. And, uh, and they were fearful. 
We, it's a natural human response to things. But it's just that. It's human, right? So apparently, within the Thessalonian church, there were some faint-hearted and timorous church, men, church members that succumbed to external pressures. If you think about the context which this letter was written, and you know the story from Acts chapter 17 of what happened to Paul when he first came to Thessalonica, and he uh, began to preach in the synagogues, as was his custom, it says, and that he taught, uh, and that, you know, eventually he, there were some believers, you know, he, he won many to the Lord, and that's exciting, but they didn't have a very good, you know, welcome after that point, and they basically ran him out of town. So, it's quite possible that, some, that there was still some persecution going on to the church at this time. And there are people who probably were very scared of this. It's a real thing. Um, you know, if you've read the latest issue of Voice of the Martyrs, you know, we, it, it's dedicated to the believers in Nigeria, northern Nigeria in particular. Um, you know, our guys are in southern Nigeria. thought I might throw that out there. But uh, at any rate, but uh, in northern Nigeria, there are people who have to make that decision, deny Christ, or die. And thankfully, many of them, you know, are not afraid to face the bullet. And many of them have had to succumb to that bullet as well. So this sort of thing was quite possibly still going on in Thessalonica from certain people, from, the, from uh, you know, the Judaizers and so forth. So that, that's who Paul is telling. These people are in the church. How do we deal with them? Well, everyone has had to deal with fear from time to time. But there are some who are particularly susceptible to it. You know, it's interesting. If you Google the word phobia, I was just going to say this, but then, I'm, then I actually did it. Uh, if you Google the word phobia, you will end up with a very, very, very long laundry list of fears. First hit. I was reading through some of these. And, you know, I don't want to make light of these, but some of these I kind of just got to say, really? Okay, so we have... Alumophobia, fear of garlic. We have pelletophobia, fear of bald people. We have Dutchphobia, fear of the Dutch. Yeah, the Dutch. Um, We have epistemophobia, fear of knowledge. Uh, Anablophobia, fear of looking up. There was another one in there I have no hope of even pronouncing. It was a very, very long, convoluted word. That is the fear of the number 666. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I'll kind of cut it short here. If, in, if there is anyone present that might have this next condition, it's homophobia, fear of sermons. So uh, it's interesting to look at some of these fears, but what I get from this and if you do it, you'll see it's a very long list. And what I get from it is that fear is a real thing in people's lives. Uh, you know, so many Christians have to deal with these inordinate fears from time to time. And ultimately, they simply just need to be given to God. And I know that sounds simple, but that really is the basis or the basic thing that we have to do. We have to trust God. Because... Inordinate fears ultimately are a lack of trust in God and his power to care for you. When we're fearful, we're fearful of the things that, you know, it's usually when we start getting this concept of of our lack of control in life. 
And that's a scary thing because man naturally wants to feel like he's on top of his game and that things are in, and he is in control. He is, you know, the captain of his own fate. But when it takes, uh, maybe, the, you know, an illness takes the wind out of your sails, all of a sudden you're just brought low and you're just, wow, I'm really out of control. And things get fearful. But you know what? When we're fearful, we need to trust the Lord because we as a church are to comfort the fearful and the faint-hearted and encourage them in their walk with Christ. We're to bear their burdens so, as not, so it does not cripple us as well. When your walk is strong, your trust will be strong. When your walk is strong, your trust will be strong. And when your trust is strong, your fear is small. We understand that God is that he is in control and that he providentially cares for his creation and that there is nothing and nowhere that we can run from his presence, that he is not master of that area as well. Paul tells us, uphold the weak. The church is made up of all sorts of Christians at various stages of maturity and growth. Some are weak in a physical sense. They may suffer from a debilitating condition or other sort of uh, just physical handicap. Okay, we're come alongside these folks, and we are to help in their difficulties where we can. But even more to the point are those that are spiritually weak. We are instructed to uphold them, to stand with them, and to give them support in difficult times and difficult circumstances. So when you know someone that's struggling with sin... And they're desperately caught within its tentacles. And they cannot seem to break free no matter what they do. They need to be upheld at that moment. If you think back to Exodus 17, 12, remember where Moses, you know, he had to hold his arms up. And as long as he held his arms up, the army of Israel was winning. And it got, you try to do that sometime, by the way. Hold your arms up for as long as you can. You can't make it very long. Ultimately, it took Aaron and her to come and to prop his arms up and to, and to support him. And this is the sort of thing that we are to do as believers. We're supposed to come alongside, help the weak, uh, bear their, help them to bear their burdens in those times and circumstances. Let's face it, though. We have to understand that we cannot conquer their sin for them. And no one can conquer your sin for you, and you can't conquer my sin for me. Okay? But we can encourage one another. We can stand with them. We can bear their burdens as much as we are able always, always, always pointing them to the one who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that they can ask or think, to the one who can alone bear our burdens for us. There is none other but the one true God, and his back is big enough. Paul tells us to be patient, or tells you know, to be patient with all, okay? That's interesting. He puts that there. So he says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Okay, this is, what, this is one of those spiritual disciplines I'm talking about. The discipline of patience. Patience does not come naturally to us, does it? Patience is something that we have to really work at, pray about, and, and uh, constantly be practicing. But why does Paul mention patience here? If you think about what all he's just been telling the Thessalonians, right? Admonishing the unruly, comforting the faint-hearted, 
upholding the weak. Guys, this is not easy to do. If you've ever had to do this with somebody, I'm sure just about all of us have to one degree or another at some point had to do this with, uh, with a brother or sister who's struggling. It takes a toll on you. It's difficult. Um, it is, you know, if you think about, you know, this the pastoral ministry, how many people enter the ministry and ultimately just get burnt out? Why do they get burnt out? It takes a toll on them. So we are commanded to be patient. So if you keep that in context, that's what he's telling them to do. So do all these things. Keep patience at the forefront because patience is for you. Okay? Patience is something that you have to learn. And that way, if you're, you won't become so easily frustrated. If you ever had to deal with somebody who's struggled with alcoholism, okay, um, it's, it's, you've got to come alongside them, but sometimes they fall off the wagon and they do it. If you know somebody that has to deal with pornography, because that is the one that will wrap you up if it's not, if it's not uh, kept in check. And if you've ever had to talk to somebody who's said, oh, I fell again last night. I did this. I did that. And sometimes you say, okay, I'm going to work with you. Let's, let's, let's take those temptations out of your life. Let's, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you know, go by your old stomping ground on the way to work, go a different way to work, leave early. Take a different route, you know. To the man that struggles with some of these other sins, you, d- take the computer out of your house. Take the television out of your house. Um, if you ever remember the movie... Um, uh, what is it, by the Kendrick brothers, fireproof. That's what this guy struggled with. And ultimately, he took an Easton baseball bat or whatever to his computer, and that's what it takes. He was nipping it in the bud. He was getting rid of it. But that's the sort of thing we constantly have to struggle with and point these guys to Christ. Constantly come alongside them and bear those burdens. But we have to be patient because when you think, are you serious, you did it again? You know, let's, you know, put, you know, get rid of that thing. So patience is something we have to work at and we have to develop. So when Paul is telling us how to deal with these other items, God is really working on our own patience as well. So he goes on with our duty towards, uh, I'll call it duty towards enemies. He says, don't give evil for evil. Okay, kids. When somebody hits you, what immediately is the first response that you want to do? Hit them back, right? I could very well be talking to my, I'm sure my kids are the only ones that do that. But... um. Okay, don't do that. So don't hit them back. Let's just start right there. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, it says, for to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christ was wronged, and he was done evil against in the ultimate sense of the idea. And how did he respond? He did not revile in return. He did not push back. He did not hit back. And that's a difficult thing to try to master. So, mom and dad, when someone cuts us off in traffic, they're invading our seemingly sovereign little realm, right? Of our, of our automobile, mine is usually a Ford Ranger or a uh, Toyota Camry. It's my little sovereign area. Um, 
you know, they, these guys demonstrate such impertinence, right? Don't they know who we are? You know what they're saying? I can't believe that guy. You know, doesn't he know who I am? Sitting there going 55 in the right-hand lane. Doesn't he know about that? Well, try this instead. Paul tells us to pursue what is good. Don't give evil for evil. Pursue what is good. Here's a discipline to learn pursuing what is good. Okay? He says, for yourselves and all others too. So this includes that guy in the monster truck who, when you're going 55 in the right-hand lane, he gets right up on you because he feels like you should be going faster. Then ultimately he skits around you and almost hits your car. And he, you know, blows his glass packs real good and loud for you. Isn't that great? There's a time to practice patience and to pursue what is good. I propose that we pray for that person in that instance. Okay? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit of that. But think about it. How can we respond differently? Because that, that's real. We all get upset in traffic. Road rage never helped anybody, though. Uh, instead, let's you know, pursue good things at that moment. Pray for them. I encourage you to do that. Um, so when you're tempted to revile, do, do what is good instead. Put off evil. Put on the pursuit of goodness. Scripture always gives us a put off, okay? And it always gives us a put on. It's never going to leave a vacuum there. We got to do that. It's lots of examples in Scripture where we do where we're commanded to do that. Put off the evil. Put on the goodness. So what is good for them? Paul says is good for you. This is not a natural discipline, but this is something that we have to work at. Okay. So he moves on to a different section. I'll call disciplines for common growth. He says rejoice always. Here's a discipline. Discipline of joy right? Rejoice always. So it covers all circumstances, even during the most difficult times of life, okay? Let's face it. It is always easy to rejoice when everyone's healthy, the mortgage is paid, your team is winning, and what, Kroger has a two-for-one special on your favorite pancake syrup? Alan loves that. He rejoices. Thank you, Lord, right? But what about when you lose your job? What about this? What if your child dies in a car wreck caused by a drunk driver? And then for whatever reason or another, that drunk driver gets off on a technicality because his rights were violated when they did an improper booking procedure. Can you rejoice at that point? Can you rejoice then? I haven't had to deal with those sorts of things. Some people have. Okay? I can only point you to the fact that Scripture commands us commands us in imperative sense rejoice rejoice at that point too so that doesn't what does that look like that doesn't mean that we just put on the happy clappy face and just pretend that all is well in the world and that we're not hurting inside you can rejoice christian and hurt at the same time it's okay if you just take a casual walk through psalms job multiple points in the bible you're going to see that. You're going to see where they're dismayed, hurting. You know, it seems like all is lost. Yet, Lord, I will still trust in you. Joy is a deep and abiding trust that is rooted in the providence and the character of God. Okay? We all know that it is not, you know, I'm sure we've taught, it's at our teaching this point, we know that joy and happiness are not synonymous. Okay? Happiness is kind of like the external thing that may or may not be there. Joy comes from Christ. It is impossible for anyone without the Lord 
to know true joy because it's deep within, even in the most difficult of circumstances. If you look at 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 through 10, I won't read the whole thing, but Paul says, you know, we... We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, okay? But we commend ourselves in every way by, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, and so on and so forth. He goes on down and then ultimately he says, uh, he says as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. Then in verse 10 he says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoicing is a discipline to be learned and is often learned through the depths of sorrow. And that is absolutely antithetical to the way the world works. He moves on by telling us to pray without ceasing. Okay, here's a good one. Discipline of prayer. Uh, If you ever read books, I mean, a lot of of the Puritan authors, you read uh, a guy named E.M. Bounds. He lived... uh, during the, he was a surgeon in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, and he. But I mean, a friend of mine loaned me several years ago a little book of his, and this guy, you talk about disciplined life of prayer, it's amazing. But, how, you know, how do you get like that, right? This is how. But let me tell you this: he mentions pray without ceasing, in this point for a reason, because this is how you have joy in all circumstances. Prayer is inexorably and unescapably linked to the discipline of joy. You cannot be joyful without a fervent, bubbling, boiling prayer life. So it doesn't mean that we spend all of our daily moments wrapped up in our prayer closet to the detriment of life around us. You know, kids are starving in the street, you know, because you've forgotten to pay the mortgage because you're, you know, praying all the time. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. But we're still called to function in the world. We're still called to function in society. However, this does mean that we must always carry about a quick bent to prayer. It should only be a short step from what we're doing now to our knees to be, to be lifting up uh, prayers of rejoicing, prayers of trust, petition, uh, support, etc., so let me ask you, Christian, when someone asks you to pray for them, do you do it? You know, um, do you tend to forget about it after you've gotten home, you've gotten around other things? What is stopping you at that moment from praying for them at that moment? Right there. Yeah. In Walmart. You know, you can pray in Walmart. That's neat. Sometimes we need to. It's kind of like that traffic thing. Pray. Anyway, full contact shopping. All right. So... But try praying for that at that moment. Try praying for the guy who just did you wrong in traffic. Okay, give that moment's anger and frustration to God. He alone is able to bear that. Children, brothers, sisters, when a sibling does you wrong, do you want to pray for them? I encourage you to try it sometimes instead of the whining, screaming, and the hitting back and getting even. That comes much more naturally and only escalates the problem. Um... Do you pray during the good times? Why not if you don't? What hinders you? Are you, afraid of, are you afraid that someone would see you praying? Think about it. Prayers of rejoicing fill the scriptures. So when someone, 
who you do not normally think of, here's something I try to make a practice of. Someone, I'm driving along and somebody flashes through my mind, maybe it's somebody I work with, I don't know, whomever, and, man, that's interesting, man, what made me think of him? All right, what's on the radio? No, try praying for that person at that point. Just those, you know, develop that little discipline to, when they just go through your mind, just do it, you know? Um, pray for the lost, pray for the nation's leaders, pray for the church, pray for our community. Pray for your enemies. Pray for the enemies of your nation. Pray for the illegal aliens who cross our borders. All politics aside, pray for these people. There's lots of things we can pray on. Prayer is a discipline to be learned and practiced. And certainly not enough can be said about it today. We can fill weeks upon weeks upon weeks of sermon series on prayer alone. So I don't even want to pretend to scratch the surface on that. Okay, he talks about this. Give thanks in everything. This is the discipline of thankfulness. This actually was kind of what led me to this passage in Scripture because I was thinking of this. Uh, a while back, a few years ago, I was in my kid's dentist's office, and I picked up some, some Christian magazine. I don't know what it was, but I just remember this article called The Discipline of Thankfulness or Discipline of Gratitude. And it was, that's kind of what, like, wow, you know, I know about being thankful, but the author really laid that well that, you know, this is something that we have to struggle with and work at. And it's not something that we just do, uh, you know, in November every year in America. Say the discipline of thankfulness has its place every day in our life. So just as prayer is linked to rejoicing, the discipline of thankfulness is linked to prayer. See that? So Colossians 4, 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything. That's addressing fear right here. But in everything, this is the antidote to the fear, by the way, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love that verse because you can be so certain that when you pray to God and you, would, and you lift up these things to him, he cares for you so much that you can already count that he is already answering your prayer. may not always be in the way that we think, but I guarantee he's already answering that. And we can at that moment already lift up thanksgiving to him. So gratitude is the will of God. He points it out in verse 18 here. Paul opens most of his letters with his normal salutation. I thank God for you. You know, how many times you look through all the, the epistles, see how many times he opens up a letter with, you know, some variation of that point. Thankfulness should characterize the Christian. It should mark it should mark you out for who you are and whom you serve. So when all others think put yourself at work or wherever, when all others are fussing and complaining about the job. Do you express an attitude of joy and thankfulness for that same job, even though it can be frustrating at times? I struggle with that because of the certain dynamics and things that go on. But I can tell you this, that I have had people come up to me and say, you know, don't you feel such and such way? Well, yeah, I do, but it doesn't mean I'm not thankful for this job and I'm thankful for whatever, you know, whatever else goes on. So we can be thankful even at times like that. Thankfulness is having a correct understanding of God's position and his rights as opposed to our, you know, your lowly position and the justice that you deserve. So Christians, let's think about it. Christians have been plucked out of the fire in which they deserve to spend eternity. All men are in rebellion 
against God. And all have fallen woefully short of the standard of perfection that he gave us and holds us to. All men, all men, are incapable of pleasing God. But rather, every good deed that they do only serves to lay up more and more condemnation for them on the inevitable day of their judgment. You can look at Isaiah 64, 6 and Romans 2, 5 about that. But I think about that. One of the things that stands out in my mind is several years ago, Oprah Winfrey, lots of money. And she has a big heart, okay? She went and they did this big two-hour program on television or whatever it was. She went to Africa and she went to all the... She dug well. She built schools. She gave, you know, all the boys a soccer ball. She gave all these little girls this doll. And that's wonderful. And that, and I'm sure the, the ramification of that are still going on today and people are still being touched by that. And I'm thankful for that. But I look at this lady of her immense multi-billion dollar wealth doing these things that are good, but yet at the same time only lay up more and more condemnation for her on the day of judgment because she rejects the one true God. And the truth is that, you know, the, the best that we can hope for without Christ, the best that we can do is like a filthy rag in God's holy presence. So when we keep that understanding of, of our position with God, we understand what we deserve, but it's not what the Christian has received. It isn't. So when we understand that concept alone, that we deserve this, but we receive this, and it's only by God's good pleasure that that is so and nothing within us, that alone should drive us to an attitude of gratitude. It's not an easy thing to do when the world is constantly bombarding us with countless things and ideas to remind us over and over and over again that there's still much that we don't have sitting in our living room or in our driveway or on the, you know, in the slip on the, on the, on the river, right? I mean, it's constantly telling us we've got to have the latest of this and the latest of that. And by the time we get that, you know, think about it. Um, you know, if your kids like to play with Legos, I love this illustration because it's very, very real sometimes. We, you know, uh, you know, if you, you, you want the set. I did it when I was a kid. I love Legos. I, I want this particular set. And, man, when I finally got it, I enjoyed it. I played with it. It was great. I built it. I'd give it about maybe by the end of the day, I was already looking at the catalog. By the way, Lego knows the way this works. They slip that very colorful catalog in every box. But you're already looking at it. You're already looking, oh, I want this, I want that, and I want this. You can't, there is no rest for that. You cannot uh, get away from it. They appeal to our sinful desires. So thankfulness, guys, is a discipline to be learned and is one of the most difficult ones to practice. It absolutely is. Because the, we might go good for a while, but then it, it doesn't take long. Our thoughts get derailed, and, man, we're already thinking of something that we don't have. So he talks about not quenching the spirit. What does that mean? Fire is often used in Scripture to signify the power and the presence of God, okay? Fire has a purifying, consuming effect. The work of the Holy Spirit is like fire in many ways, and we want to be careful not to throw a wet blanket upon his work by resisting him. And sometimes painful ways that he uses the word and our circumstances to purify us, 
to make us more holy. That's his goal, make us more holy. And sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes we're in the crucible, but sometimes we hate that crucible. So we buck against it. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So why does he put that here in this section? He says, think about this. All the ways that we formerly mentioned, which is rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving, are all means and methods used to draw us closer to God. When we are unfaithful in those areas, we are quenching the Spirit. We're bucking against the way that he has established that we are to, to walk well. So along with that, he says, don't despise prophecies. And I'll hurry up because I know we're about done here. He says, don't despise prophecies. Appreciate the means of grace and the teaching and the preaching that you sit under. Hold it in high regard. Just prior to this section that we're looking at was verse 12 and 13 where Paul just got through telling them to esteem those who labor among them to lead them in the Lord. And that primarily is the elders who shepherd them. If the preaching of the word cuts you like a knife, don't withdraw from it, but rather embrace it and allow it to lead you to repentance and to a deeper, more healthy walk. He tells us to test all things. We learned recently in our Sunday school class, we're talking about the, um, the, the, you know, why we can trust the Bible, the canon of Scripture. The word canon means measuring rod. So use that measuring rod for what it is. It will quickly reveal truth from error in our lives. Test all things. What is good and what is bad? Hebrews 4.12 says of the word, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. It will lead us correctly. Will we follow where it goes? Use the word of God daily in your life to test all things. And then I won't spend a lot of time on hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil, because it's essentially Romans 12, 9, which we already you know, heard all about that one time so a few weeks ago. So hold fast to what is good. If it's good, if it's wonderful, cling to it, Scripture tells us. Be like Velcro, just, just attached. Abstain from every form of evil. You know, sometimes times get hard, circumstances say this, you know, you know, well, hey, you know, I, I know that I'm, you know, I kind of lost my, my house right now, and the only roommate I can find I, is, this, is this girl over here, and, you know, and I'm, so I moved in, and we're just roommates, and it's all platonic. Abstain from every form of evil. I don't care what it is. Don't put yourself in that situation. You will cause others to assemble. People are looking at Christians and non-Christians. There is always a way. And that's where the church can come in if you ever find yourself into that situation. Abstain from every form of evil. So in conclusion, fellowship is not confined to a dining hall at a local church building. Okay, It's not this fellowship hall that we hear so often. It's not a way to describe our get-togethers and our meals. Real fellowship takes place in the trenches. Okay? It occurs when we confront our brothers and sisters in their sin, yet doing it in a loving way. It happens when we persevere to learn spiritual disciplines, though that may take many years to accomplish if we ever. Fellowship is learning patience through the difficulties of those who are weaker and fearful. It's learning when we encourage one another in the disciplines of joy and prayer and thankfulness. It culminates under the preached word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. When we persevere to learn the art of fellowship and communion through these means, 
we can be assured that the God of peace will sanctify us, as verse 23 says, and grow us so that we can be fully blameless at the coming of Christ. So, folks, if you're here today and you're made aware of these things and they do not burden you, it is quite possible that you are still under the wrath of God and that your greatest need right now is forgiveness because you are inherently in a natural state of rebellion against God who created you and that same God who holds you accountable to a very high standard. So I urge you and I implore you to flee to the cross of Christ, beg forgiveness from him. He alone is the only acceptable offering that would appease the wrath of God. You cannot do it. If you're under the wrath of God right now, in his hand, you cannot work your way to heaven. There is nothing you can do. So if you, find, if you have questions about that, come speak to myself or to anyone that you know that has a strong walk with Christ that they may point you towards that celestial city because we want to see you there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I am thankful for your great grace, for your patience over us, Thank you, Father, that you've not left us without direction. Your word is true, and we're accountable to it. Your word, Father, has brought us in fellowship together. And we pray, O oh God, that we can endure with one another to the difficult things of the Christian life so that we can, so that our hearts may be in unity, that we may, Father, help us to understand that we are called to confront the one who is unruly and disorderly in the ranks. Sometimes that person may be me. Lord, help my heart to receive that. Help me to understand that. By the Holy Spirit, may he convict all of us in that instance. Help us when we're weak. Help us when we're fearful and not trusting you. Because that, that is something that is so difficult to do when you're in that moment. Help us to understand that you are providential over all things, at all times, without fail. And you never relax your strength and your control over things. Help us to endeavor and to, to press on in, in thankfulness, rejoicing, and prayer. Help us to develop these disciplines just as the musician has to constantly practice to become deaf to what he's doing. God, may your word prick us. May it burn us. May it lead us to a closer walk with you in Christ's name.